So for those of you that are new, a little bit of a framing for you to kind of uh, put it in perspective what we're doing. So this whole year, Tim and I, uh, Tim's the other guiding teacher, we are going to look at um, um, a portion of the list you know, it's sort of like Dhamma practice has turned into a series of lists that you can study. And even uh, uh, when I first started uh, studying Dhamma itself, I would just pick various lists and practice with them. And so practicing with the list is, uh, it's kind of a common way to come to learn and understand Dhamma. And so Tim and I always pick some list that we can, uh, um, some list we can practice with over the course of the month and, um, I mean, of the year. And then this year, it happens to be the threes. And so there are, we picked four list of threes. There are more, but we picked four. And so, um, this uh, quarter, we're doing the three characteristics. And I had said before that there's something significantly foundational about seeing things in threes, because the triangle itself is a very powerful shape. It's a very powerful geometric shape itself. So these practices that are linked together in threes are linked together in a very powerful understanding. So last quarter, the first quarter, we did the three refuges. And we talked about practicing with Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha together and how it can uh, build a sense of stability around your faith in the practice and trusting in both the Buddha and uh, his uh, his capacity to awaken, which means that our, we all have that same capacity because he was a human being just like you and I. Uh, his teachings that he saw, the Dhamma, and then the Sangha, the practitioners that help support our willingness to stay in this practice. And when you put all that together, then it becomes this great foundation for your stability and lasting practice. So I've been practicing for 30 years, not 30 years by myself, but 30 years with Sangha, being with people, going through all kinds of hell, up and down, all of that. And you do it all with other people. You do it all with this uh, practicing with the three, so to speak, or the list, and you um, uh, get collected with... um, this realization that, yes, I, I may have come from high point uh, in the projects, but I can still awaken just like anybody else. That understanding begins to grow when you practice together. So this quarter, we are looking at what are called the three characteristics. It is this under, it means that uh, what the Buddha realized is all phenomena in this human existence, all of it, is subject to three qualities or characteristics about the nature of the way it is. It's subject to impermanence, 
meaning that it's subject to change constantly. Doesn't matter what it is. It could be a sound, something we pick up in the sense doors. It could be some kind of experience we have. It could be anything. It could just be uh, the, the furniture that we're sitting on, this building, anything that exists in this natural world is subject to these three characteristics. And that begins with impermanence. It's subject to change. It's subject to the harsher way to hear it is it's subject to decay. Anything that arises is going to pass away. Anything that comes into existence will go out of existence. And anything that... um, uh, can exist, cannot exist. So there's this constant kind of realization that change is all around us. And this, this kind of realization is also connected to, um, what's called dukkha or suffering. So the impermanence is anatta, uh, anicca, this constant change brings with it a level of dissatisfaction. There's no way around this dissatisfaction. We will be dissatisfied when things that we like go away and things that we don't like come our way. (laughs) We don't get our way. Uh, when we have to tolerate being around things that we don't want to be around and when we have to tolerate losing things or um, letting go of things that we don't want to um, let go of. These kinds of qualities of mind that are constantly happening because of change in and of itself cause us a lot of stress, a lot of disease, dis-ease, a lot of um, irritation and dukkha. And then uh, the third quality is that we're we're going to talk about dukkha this month in uh, May, and then in June we're going to talk about this third quality, which is anatta, kind of this non-self. That no matter how much we want to impose our will upon the world to make things more settled, so we don't have to just have things coming and going the um, that attempt to do that ends up bringing more dukkha, but it does not affect the coming and going because it's not personal. It's not something that we can as individuals control. It is something that we as individuals can relate to, but we can't control this uh, coming and going and we can't control the nature of reality. And so those three characteristics, when you begin to see them, recognize the nature of where you're at, the more freedom you actually have access to. It's just like learning the refuges, except the vision that you're, the the, the view that you're looking at is you're looking at the nature of the moment in time and seeing where you're getting caught in not accepting the truth of the reality of the moment. So 
we are going to talk about dukkha. I'm going to start with a kind of a way, because we're going to talk about it all month. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can frame it a different way than we normally frame it. Because maybe, maybe because I just have had enough of the, the, the sadness that I really think it's time to reconsider how we look at this word dukkha, how we look at this word suffering. So suffering is in and of itself difficult. It is in and of itself unpleasant. It is not okay. And I can't, I would be pretending or, you know, kind of like painting a rosy picture if I somehow tried to make it look like it's okay if we suffer. It's all okay. Everything is good. It's great. It just doesn't, it's not really true. But I think there's a way that we could see what the truth is around suffering that brings a level of joy within the context of that. So let's see if I can, I'm going to start with a quote from, um, uh, I think I'll start with this quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. So Thich Nhat Hanh says, the real suffering of humankind lies in the way we look at reality. Look, and you will see birth, old age, sickness, and death, unfulfilled hopes, separation from loved ones, and contact with those we despise are also wonders in themselves. There are precious aspects of existence. Without them, existence would not be possible. Most important is knowing how to ride the waves of impermanence, smiling as one knows one has never been born and will never die. This is kind of a strange way of talking about what it is that I want to talk about, but I think it's a great way to start. Because what I'd like to point to is this idea that dukkha, whenever you feel it, is actually a sacred moment. At whatever level you're feeling it, it's actually a sacred moment. It's a moment in which you can actually, um, I don't know how to say it. If I were in, uh, in, if I were talking in my Christian terms, I would say it would be a moment when you come into the presence of God. It's a moment when you can see the presence of God. It's a moment when you could be in a liberative state in that moment. We are closer to liberation when there is difficulty and dukkha, suffering, than we are when it's not. Here's another way Thich Nhat Hanh had that same understanding. He says it like this. 
love enables us to see things that without love enable love enables us to see things that cannot be seen without love so you you cannot see some things without love the eyes of compassion are also the eyes of understanding and compassion only arises in suffering compassion is the sweet water that springs forth from the source of understanding to practice looking deeply is the basic medicine for hatred anger and fear these two quotes that tiknan han is pointing to is this idea that the natural state of our minds is to push away from difficulty that if we see or feel any kind of difficulty our natural reaction the very first thing we think of is how do i get rid of this it's just natural it's very human it's what we do it's not just human i mean we're born with a body that's got billions of cells in it and i was telling the 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 people that hold the teachings on thursday night i was telling them that all of those billions of cells in our body they're all pushing away from the unpleasant if any unpleasant is coming their way they're all automatically pushing away so there is a powerful dynamic energy within us that automatically pushes against unpleasantness that does not come from how you grew up who your people are where you come from are you a great practitioner not a great practitioner are you liberated not liberated it's just very much a natural part of being human that when something unpleasant when change happens we will automatically push against it so hold that for a moment here just rethink the buddha's leaving home and when the buddha left home he set out for the purpose of understanding why in god's name do we have to suffer so in this life clearly there's got to be some thing about suffering and all he could do of all the practices he never could get free of the suffering he never could i mean it didn't matter whether he had great practice if he had hard practice it didn't matter he could not free his mind from the suffering so he tried transcending the suffering this kind of i'm going to be better than this i'm going to i'm i'm just going to my mind's going to be freer than this and there are sometimes in our meditation practice where it feels like that's exactly where we go it just feels very peaceful very pleasant it's like this is why we meditate it's perfect it should be like this all the time but in truth it's not you might feel that one sit in the entire month but the other 29 days it's going to be all distraction irritation 
struggling to try to get back to that place where you were so peaceful. And he realized that it didn't matter how transcendent he could get, that he could not transcend his way out of dukkha. He could not transcend his way somehow out of suffering. He tried aesthetic practices. We talk about this all the time. I always reiterate this to me because I need to remember that he even tried like bearing down into it. So many of us have had emotional energies that show up. We're sad, we're angry, we're irritated, whatever, disappointed, betrayed. We feel betrayed, whatever it is. We bear down into it. Say, I'm just going to sit with it. I'm just going to sit with this disappointment. I'm just going to be with it. We try our best to just be with the disappointment, be with the the sadness, whatever it is, the grief, whatever. I'm going to sit with it. Just going to be with it. I've had so many yogis tell me, I'll ask them how they're doing. They're like, I'm just sitting with a lot of grief right now. Just sitting with it. I'm like, well, what are you doing with it? Just sitting with it, being with the grief. As if somehow or another, if I sit with this grief long enough, it's going to leave me. It's going to go somewhere, do something, transcend it. It does not. We just sit with grief. Just sit with it, sit with it, sit with it. And I think he realized he wasn't going anywhere with it either. So when he got enlightened, He didn't get enlightened by somehow somehow, uh, transcending the difficulty. And he didn't get enlightened um, like going through it in some respects, like pushing through it. Something else happened. I'm gonna, for some reason, I'm just really listening to Thich Nhat Hanh. So I'm going to say something else that Thich Nhat Hanh said. I have all these quotes to help me give this talk tonight. So he says, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas suffer too. So Buddhas, enlightened. You're already enlightened. You've passed everything, done the test, whatever. Bodhisattvas are the ones that are close to Buddhahood. So Buddhas and Bodhisattva, long way from where we are, they suffer too. We're not going to somehow or another get out of this suffering thing. The difference between them and us, so the difference between the Buddhas and the Bodhisattva and us, is that they know how to transform their suffering into joy. And Good and like good organic gardeners, they do not discriminate in favor of the flowers or against the garbage. They know how to transform garbage into flowers. So don't throw away your suffering. This is what I think Buddha realized. He realized that it was actually the suffering itself that offered the greatest amount of freedom. That when 
he allowed the suffering to be as it is, not wait for it to pass, not somehow try to pretend it's not difficult, not push against it, resist against it, but to begin to understand what was in the suffering itself. Now he could begin to kind of liberate this mind that he had. He could begin to see things in a completely different way. This is what we want to try to see this month, is we want to see notice difficulties and notice what is happening in the nature of those difficulties. What's actually going on with you? Not just what do I need to do to make it so I feel better or get rid of it, which is our go-to energy as human beings, but to just, and not to just suck it up and bear it. Oh, okay. I just got to, I just got to be with this, but to actually 100% get interested in what's actually happening. And you might begin to notice some things. You might begin to notice that a lot of our suffering arises out of our thinking. Not out, it's not so much the pain, even if I have physical pain, a lot of the suffering of the physical pain is the mind's wishing it wasn't this way. So we can have physical pain, the mind wishes it wasn't this way. The same mind that wishes it wasn't this way is the same mind that can learn how to look at a scenario uh, with compassion. So this is what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's pointing to. The same mind that pushes and resists against change or difficulty or whatever showing up is the very same mind that can look at the exact same thing with compassion, with kindness. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm trying to say that there is no part of you that says that disappointment is suffering, except for your mind. If your mind thought that disappointment was pleasurable, you would be looking forward to an opportunity to be disappointed. (laughs) You would say, no, don't give it to me. I really want it, but don't give it to me. You would look for that. If your mind says sitting on this chair is comfortable, you will feel comfortable. You won't think anything about it. You'll be just riding it out. But if your mind says sitting on this chair is not comfortable, 
you will not stop thinking about how much you hate these chairs. What Buddha realized was that the mind in and of itself is the determining factor on how we experience any given moment. And learning how to see that mind is what our is what our task is. Ajahn Chah's this uh, famous uh, Thai monk, and he said um, many of our teachers. Um, studied under Ajahn Chah. And he says that phenomena such as happiness and suffering are just names given to facilitate understanding of reality. So however the mind understands reality, if it understands it as happy, it will call it happy. If it understands it as suffering, it will call it suffering. Their nature is just a combination of many factors that are dependently arising and subject to cessation. Hence, they are not sustainable. Wrong views are attachments to happiness. Um, Suffering is us. Consider them real. What? Wrong views are attachments to happiness. The suffering is us. Consider them real. Somehow I must have messed that up. Wanting to find the truth in the unreal brings only suffering. Oh, I see. So wrong views are attachments to the suffering or the happiness. And we consider them real. If you consider that Whatever you're thinking, this is suffering, this is happiness, and you consider it real. Now, we are going to start having some problems right there in that moment. So what in the Buddha's discovery that he, I think, realized, and we can really begin to see this if you're willing to practice with the 29 days of a distracted mind rather than searching for the one day when it was all peaceful. But what he noticed is that the first the the the, the first true step onto the path towards liberation is to acknowledge the presence of dukkha to acknowledge the presence of difficulty. That is a requirement. It's always around us. It's always happening in some form or another. And it is learning to have the capacity to acknowledge dukkha is present. And when we acknowledge that dukkha is present, some difficulty is present there is this doorway that opens up for the rest of the Four Noble Truths, the rest of the path, the rest of the freedom that's even possible. But it starts 
with this acknowledgement that some difficulty is present. It's not easy to do this. But when we acknowledge some difficulty is present, two things happen. One, you are not in the difficulty trying to fix it. So it's in this acknowledging that there's some difficulty here. It's almost like acknowledging you're irritated. Acknowledging your, your, um, you're upset. Not, I know I'm upset and I'm trying to fix it, but this acknowledging kind of in this uh, acceptance, I guess you could say, this accepted, non-judgmental, I'm upset. And that initial acknowledgement is the first part of this whole realm of opening to the liberative quality of dukkha. And the second part is being kind. The second part is softening into that so you could begin to understand it. So you have to acknowledge it's there, then you soften into it. I think over the course of the month, we are going to have a lot of time talking about the various ways that Dukkha shows up for us. But always remember that first you have to know that you're having a difficulty. You have to sort of accept that you're having a difficulty. And this is kind of strange because I grew up as an angry person. So I grew up with a lot of anger and a lot of anxiety. And this anger and anxiety was a kind of a strong energy that would be with me. So I knew when I was angry and when I had some kind of anxiety, I knew. But that's not the kind of knowing I'm talking about here. I knew I had anger and I knew I had anxiety, but I didn't think either one of them should be there. So even though I knew I'm mad, I didn't want to be mad. So I still feel like I should somehow do something to get rid of it. The kind of knowing that I hope we practice with over this course of the month is not a knowing that decides one is better than the other. It is a knowing that something is present in a much more neutral way. So you're actually giving anger permission to be. You're giving yourself permission to be angry. You're giving yourself permission to be frustrated. You're treating uh, anger and frustration like it is a natural part of the experience. It should be here. I should be angry about this. I should be upset about this. And then 
you want to soften with it. Soften with the whole idea of it. Okay. So there's two more two more quotes here that I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, this, I think these last three quotes all go to this last thing here. Because what I want to help us see is the difference between the ordinary minds habitually fixing and trying to get rid of unpleasantness automatically. Soon as something unpleasant happens, everything in us is going to say, this should not be. I need to fix it. I need to make it right. I need to do something to make it not be this way. Whether it's an emotional energy, whether it's, you know, something that happened, something that's changed, whatever it is, some way someone is being our Instinct is, if it's unpleasant, it's somehow wrong and it needs to be fixed and made right so that it'll be pleasing and pleasant. I want to see if we'll practice with that this this month, that we will begin to see that automatic, almost it's habitual. As soon as something unpleasant shows up, there is this impulse to fix it. It cannot remain the way it is. And I'm emphasizing that so much because what is happening in that moment is this right here. If we take, here's Thich Nhat Hanh, these last three quotes, I just was all about Thich Nhat Hanh today. So, This is what he says. If we take an opinion, a practice, a dogma, or I'm going to say we take an experience to be true, we may cling to it so much that even if the truth came knocking at our door, we won't let it in. We have to be able to transcend our previous knowledge the way we climb a ladder Um, we have to be able to transcend our previous knowledge the way we climb a ladder. If we're on the fifth rung and we think that we are very high, there's no hope for us to take a step to the sixth rung. We must learn to transcend our own views. So what This whole idea is, in this month, is to begin to transcend this idea of what we think unpleasant actually is. Transcend this idea that just because something is unpleasant, it needs to be fixed. We need to get rid of it. Or... That if something is pleasant, it can't harm us. What could go wrong? If it's pleasant, this is where I want to be, right? It's all good. If at some point in your life, you adopt an idea or a perception as the absolute truth, 
you close the door of your mind. This is the end of seeking the truth. And not only do you no longer seek the truth, but even if the truth were to come in person and knock on your door, a second time I'm saying, you will refuse to open it. Attachment to views, attachment to ideas, attachment to perceptions are the biggest obstacles to truth. So one of the biggest truths, one of the biggest perceptions that we have to begin to consider is that unpleasantness is wrong to be fixed, to be changed, not to be had. And pleasantness is right, should be had. That understanding is what I think the Buddha broke through. And instead of trying to transcend into some pleasant state or bear down into the unpleasant state, what he realized as this middle way was this beginning to see that the state itself, and I think the unpleasant state is the best way to start, This unpleasant state, if I stop trying to fix it, not bear down through it, but soften into, ah, this is a moment where I am face-to-face with God. I am face-to-face with the possibility of liberation. I am at a sacred door. However you see in your own understanding, sacredness, true, liberative sacredness. In the moment that you're feeling some difficulty where it seems like you're in the garbage can, you're in the, 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 you're in the depths of despair, this is wrong. This has to be changed immediately. That moment right there is where you're actually full of grace. That moment is where the possibility that you could be liberated is the first time it's going to show up. It's not going to show up when things are going good. It's going to show up when things are not going good and you do not succumb to this absolute need to fix it. Last quote by Thich Nhat Hanh. It takes insight and courage to throw away an idea. If we suffer deeply, it may be because we held on to an idea we weren't able to release. And oftentimes, some of my greatest discomfort and difficulty comes from not being willing to let go of some idea of what I think is going on. Now, I don't, I'm assuming that somebody, whether you ask the question out loud or you don't ask the question out loud, but you think it, I might as well answer that question right now. Inevitably, somebody would say, But I mean, what if it really is bad? 
what if really, really, like you really are being abused? It's really, really bad. Speaking as someone who was in so many abusive relationships, most times when you're being abused, like you're in codependent relationships and it's messy, you don't even know you're in it. You're not even paying attention. You won't even admit it. Because the minute you truly admit this abusive, this is codependent, this is not good, you will not stay in that relationship. And most of the people that I know that we were in all these abusive relationships, until we actually accepted that it was a bad relationship, difficult and hurtful, we never left. We never got out of it because we couldn't see the abuse. We just kept looking for excuses to convince ourselves that it wasn't really an abusive relationship. So if you were to see that you were in a truly abusive relationship or truly an abusive situation, if you were to see that, you would not stay. Because the kindness and the softening around that energy would also give you the courage to say, I'm not staying in this. There's no, there's no way someone that sees the truth of the way things are, are going to stay in an abusive relationship. It's not going to happen because you can see it. The difficulty is not staying in an abusive relationship when you see how bad it is, the difficulty is not really seeing how bad that relationship is, not really accepting the truth of how bad it actually is. And if you accepted the truth of it, you would not stay. So this coming to terms, this taking the time to be with a difficulty and not immediately try to change it is not talking at the level of abuse. It's talking at the level of acknowledging the truth that you are in an abusive relationship. And then once you come to that understanding, you will respond to it. So the The practice here at looking at difficulty and staying with it and not immediately seeking to fix it, it's actually trying to help us begin to see the truth of whether or not a situation is truly bad that needs to be dealt with or is it just... uh, kind of like a flippant habit. I don't want, I don't like this. I need to get my way. I want it to be like this. So uh, an example would be sometimes when I was working, I would take my papers. I think I've told you guys this. I'd take my papers. So the way our, our, 
the, the prosecutor's office was set up was you would have to, we would write up these motions and we had a whole administrative pool that you had to take your papers to the administrative pool and give it to them. And then they would type it up and then they would put it back in the basket right outside your door. And then you would take it and have it done. So we did not type up our own complaints, motions, whatever, legal documents. And so I would type up, write up my little things, and then I would pass it to the administrative pool and wait for it to come to my basket. And then I would sometimes see the papers. One particular time I saw the papers in my basket. I'm going into my office, just got out of court, looked at it, immediately saw some mistakes, put my stuff down, turned around, walked back out of my office. When I walked out of the office, I saw the administrative pool was looking at me. And as soon as I walked out of the office, the person that typed it up said, oh. I saw that. And I said, what, what was that? She said, nothing. Do you need something to wear it? And I'm like, what was that kind of rolling eyes, kind of, you know, like sigh. What was that? And she goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Can I help you with something? And I said, no, 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 no. I saw that. And she said, do you really want to know what I'm, do you really want to know? And I said, yes. She goes, are you going to be mad? I'm like, no, I just want to know what it is. She said, you are the worst. You're never satisfied. You're always upset. I knew you weren't going to like what I typed. You change everything. It just this constant kind of thing. I said, are you serious? Really? I mean, that's really? And all the administrators are all snickering because they all are like, oh, it happened on her watch, you know. She's the one that got caught. I couldn't believe this. So I was this picky person that needed everything to look exactly like I wanted it to look. And in doing so, I irritated the hell out of my administrative staff because I was never satisfied with anything that they did. But I was also picky when it came to... um uh, my boys, I was picky with life. I mean, I came from trauma, so I was very picky about safe things. And this has to be like this and has to be like that. And when I began to look back on my life, when I started practicing, I could see where pickiness, like me being picky with whether or not the T's whether or not all the letters are bolded and then there's a certain font level and, you know, whether or not I, this is italics and this is underlined and this part is not underlined. I mean, all that pickiness that I would have towards what that document looked like. 
was the same pickiness I had around keeping me and the boys safe. So the keeping me and the boys safe, that was good picky, not good picky on the documents. But my mind is not gonna know the difference between those two. It's gonna be the same picky at everything. And I had to learn and discern when that pickiness was appropriate and when it was just this habit energy of having to always get my way. And if I get my way, I think I'm going to be safe. I think everything's going to be okay. You just do what I want and everything's going to be okay. And so that learning, I had to learn how over time to not get my way. And of course, you can tell if I didn't get my way because I was so used to it there would be this huge upheaval that would go on in the mind. This huge idea that it's not safe. Something's wrong. We got to fix it. We got to do it like this. And then it'll be okay. And so in order for me to learn and discern when it's appropriate to be picky on behalf of safety and when it is not appropriate to like control exactly how the T's are crossed. That I had to learn. And that we can only learn if we're willing to wait a moment and feel into that difficulty in the present moment and begin to learn to see through that habit energy, learn how to apply the truth of it. You see what I'm pointing to? This is what you're practicing with dukkha. You're not just trying to, you know, be with difficulty. You're learning to see and discern is your reaction appropriately related to this moment? Or are you just being your habit self, not really paying attention to what's going on? Anyway, we'll talk more on these things as time goes on. It worked out well with the administrative staff. She did not get in trouble. We made an agreement that they would type it up one time. And if I didn't like it, I had to change it myself. (laughs) I don't know how it is, but I gradually begin to not need so many changes. It just was magic. (laughs) Anyway, so this is what we're going to practice with. So I hope you understand that when you talk about dukkha as dhamma, there will be dukkha show up this month because we're talking about it. It's like talking about impermanence and impermanence shows up. So there will be dukkha showing up. But it's showing up kind of like an opportunity for you to begin to practice, not, oh, man, this month is just jacked up. This is um, when we step into the realm like this with this energy and we ask the universe to show us the nature of dukkha, then it's going to show up over the course of the month. It is to be practiced with, not to be fixed. 
Okay, so I'll sit a moment and then we'll see if there's any comments. All righty. Let's see if there's any um, see if there's any comments or any questions anyone wants to ask. Oh, there is. Oh, go ahead. Hi, Gary. I have to unmute myself when you un- when you mute, so we don't get any feedback. Just a minute, Gary. Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, Twerry, that was wonderful. Um, and I actually, while we were uh, meditating, I had to talk to my wife because you blew my mind on a lot of things. But what I wanted to just just uh, share, uh, what I heard from you kind of was this yin-yang Type of discussion where when I'm low, other people are high. When I'm high, other people are low, and it's all good. And I'm just smiling right now. I just, it's all freaking good. It's like it's, you, you just hit something in my soul that I've been. I haven't been able to process, but yeah, I guess I'm going to leave it at that. It's just like, we're all good. Let's just follow what we're doing. It's all going to work out, but be true to yourself because it's not just about you. It's about us and us, right? And it's going to work out, but you have to have that. I I, I don't know. It's just, Oh my God, where it just you hit me with something. I feel like if we were boxing, you, you know, you were like uh, Muhammad Ali, and I was like a little twelve-year-old, and I just like, oh my God, I get it now. I'm not going to fight you again. You know what I mean? Just, amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, I got to give you the rub though. so the inspiration that you feel right now somehow you capture that right you write it down we're all okay just say that because when it's gonna become important is when you feel the dukkha because when you feel the dukkha you're not going to have that inspiration in that moment. What you're going to have is, I got to fix this. Come on now. You got to buck up. You got to do it this way. This is the way we got to do it. You're going to have that impulse of that. So the thing that you have to use is the inspiration to hold on to that, to remind you to wait. Be still here. Don't do nothing. Just wait. And see if you're just moving at an impulse or if there really needs to have something done. But chances are it's impulse. I'd say 90% of the time it's impulse. And if you wait, 
it will on its own shift. You see, that's what you're doing. So you need that inspiration to remember that when the dukkha hits, because when the dukkha hits, you won't necessarily think that way. Yeah, you, uh, oh, good. (laughs) Got to do the thing. We have to do two. I cannot wait to make it in our space. Yeah, I really love this this one, and um, I love the Lynn Unger um, poem. They she did a Lynn Unger poem last time, and I think that that is my poet. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's just it just hits home for it me. Hits home. But um, I think that what I kept thinking about when you were talking about this and we were talking about the whole uh at the end you were talking about how you're like learning from your suffering and how you adjust and and I feel like that's the that is the time that you learn like these past few years have been have been really tough for for different reasons and I feel like I've come out of it on the other end being a better person and having learned so much and it's probably what's gotten me here um but the the moment that really struck me um, when I first started really kind of understanding that was I was in a challenging relationship and my I was really upset and I was talking with my sister and and she said something she said um, you know but I just don't want to see you hurt and it just stopped me in my tracks because I'm like well why wouldn't you want to see me hurt because that means I'm being vulnerable that means I'm opening myself up like if I'm not ready to be hurt, if I'm not willing to go through those experiences, then I'm going to live a very shallow life and mm-hmm. I will become a better and, and, and stronger person. So um, this really hit home for me because I, I just believe it to my soul. And I feel like I've, uh, I, I have not experienced it, obviously, to the degree that you're talking about, but it, it feels like I have like the tiniest bit of insight into it. And that feels really good. That is good. So thank you. Yes, you're welcome. That's really good. If we're not willing to be hurt, then we will pretend that nothing's going wrong. And that's really not true. You know, we won't really see what's happening. So that's great. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about conditioning. <laughs> and I was also thinking, about, we talked about this a little bit, but um, a couple of days ago, a few days ago, I was, I, I had a, I was on a meeting and, and I was very, very upset at the end of it. And I was going to, and I was writing like crazy how mad I was and how, how, how I've been wronged and this and that and the other thing. And, and I read it to my wife and I, I you know, should I send this? No. <laughs> Like what I have to. I was so like full of it. I was so like I have to send this. They have to know. And the next day, I was so happy that I didn't send it. I was just like, had I sent it, I'd have this whole pile of shit I'd have to deal with. And I and I didn't have it any. It wasn't there. Yep. There was no remorse. And I and this is after you know. Believe me, I've sent it in the past. (laughs) (laughs) So it, it is. It's that. It's like it's like facing that conditioning somehow and seeing it. Yep. Just seeing it and knowing it's there, knowing it's habit. But it, it takes time. Yep. And uh, 
Anyway. Yeah. And the other thing that you said that, that hadn't made, made the connection before was safety and controlling and, and being really, I mean, in, in all of my jobs, I was extremely detail oriented and, you know, there's probably some, something there. Yeah. <laughs> there's probably some eyes rolling. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. That's I'm, right. They're happy people too. That's you know? right. I, I, yeah. I, you're, you're really hitting, you're pointing to something here because it's a trial and error. It's not, it's not perfection. I like what Philip Moffat always says that we're practicing practice. We're not practicing results. So if you get stuck in thinking, oh, I got to not send the email, sometimes you're going to send it and you're going to have to deal with it. And that is part of the learning process. But gradually you learn to hold it and wait and not send it. And gradually you will learn what you learned by not sending it. You begin to feel into it and see that the energy does rise. There's nothing wrong with getting mad and being at the meeting and getting upset and something was wrong. But that does not mean that you need to do anything about it. That's what you're learning, that I can be mad. I can even be picky. I can be however I am. And I don't have to impose that will on the rest of the people around me. Thanks, Terry. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Hi, Monique. Is that Monica? Oh, Monica, let me turn mine off. Thank you. Hello. Um, I am uh, brand new to the group. And uh, when I learned in the very beginning that the topic of the month would be suffering, I almost ran away because I always run away from suffering. Um, and uh, I think part of that is human, but part of that is my personal history. And I've come to realize that this is actually the one thing that I need the most to, um, to, to be there with it and face it and analyze it. And I really am grateful that you did that with a little bit of uh, sense of humor and um, and self-understanding and uh, allowing your personal history to kind of light it up because um, I've come to realize I, I think that would be a really, uh, the, the, the thing that I'm running away the most is uh, probably the most necessary because it's very easy to be in the moment uh, when the moment is peaceful. So um so I will, uh, you know, do the work <laughs> to be here. And thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's kind of strange that we're talking about being with suffering, which is in and of itself difficult. And yet, if we do it together and we do it with humor, we can do it. We can laugh about it. We can do it. We can, we can be together. And there's a way in which that strength of Sangha actually helps us see through things. And, you know, I remember when I first started on the practice, I sat by myself for, for 10 years. It was just me. And, I mean, I could sit for 45 minutes with no anxiety, no problem. Just, you know, 
just so happened if I felt a little uneasy, I would just get up. I figured the mind was saying, oh, you don't need to sit today. This isn't a good day to sit. And I would just get up. I just didn't think anything of it. And uh, when I was in my happy place, I could sit for 45 minutes. It would be no problem. So when I came to Sims and I just started experiencing, I, I went through uh, the beginning class with Rodney and I started really having some embodiment experiences and a lot of anxiety and a lot of uh, panic. And I, there's no way I was going to do that at home. There's no way. When I would sit at home, I barely could even get to the chair, let alone sit there for any duration of time. And so for a long time, I only sat once a week. And that would be when I was sitting at Sims on Monday nights. I would sit with Sims. And the only reason why I didn't get up is because there's 200 people in the room. And everybody would know I was the one that got up. So I would sit there and it was this kind of, capacity to be able to build the capacity to sit. And if anyone had told me that I would sit peacefully for 45 minutes or hour, whatever, without having an actual heart attack, I wouldn't have believed it because I couldn't do that. But I could do it if I did it with a sangha. And sometimes I think we don't give Sangha credit for what Sangha can actually do for us. We want to deal with some of these difficulties, but it's not that easy to do it by yourself. We don't, we don't have the courage to do it by ourselves. And then when we get together like this, we can talk about it, laugh about it, sit together, and actually take on some of these really difficult, challenging things and not feel... Um, like somehow or another, there's something wrong with us because we don't do it all good. And so even with my sloppy years of sitting only when I was at Sims and wiggling the whole time and all the drama I went through, still, um, when I think about the larger trajectory of 30 years of practice, that was nothing. But if I were to look back at that actual moment in time, it was a big deal just to sit on Monday nights. So, you know, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you practicing with us and suffering and, and uh, you know, having the courage to face some of this. Just do it with other people, not have to do it by yourself. Well, oh, come on. I'm wondering how long do you sit with it and know if there is a way to fix it. I'm trying to figure out, you know, because there's been some in- incidences uh, in the last year. And and I do see when I get the anxiety and it needs to be fixed right now. <laughs> and I understand backing up and waiting. Um. But I'm just wondering, you know, what what would be the right time limit um, until you let your mind say, okay, now how can I fix this? What can I do? I started out because I had all that anxiety with one minute. 
So all I had to sit with it was to allow it to be okay for me to be anxious for one minute. And gradually over time, I could be longer than one minute. But it started out with what I called my one minute moment of an awakening, of enlightenment. So if I could just be with the anxiety for one minute, I figured that was enough. I was enlightened and that that's the move on to fix it. So there is no requirement that you hold it for 30 minutes. You sit with it for an hour. There just is, it's not really like that. It's more your own permission to be okay with this for for as long as you can just a few moments and then the anxiety one thing that we didn't have permission to do in sims when i was going was to stand up and do some walking but i think we should have permission to if the anxiety is getting overwhelming you don't really have to fight through it like i did you could stand up go to the back of the room and just do some walking just you know that's fine The idea isn't to force yourself to stay with something. The idea is to give yourself permission to recognize there's some difficulty here. Let me give it a try. Let me see how long I can be with it. Just as a gift to myself. How long can I be with this? When you've done as much as you can, then let the whole thing go. Like get lost in fantasy. You know, don't even think about it. Let it go, walk, whatever. Go watch TV, do whatever. The idea is not to force yourself to stay with it. It is to give yourself a permission to just consider. And when you do that, over time, you're going to begin to think, I think I might be just getting in a little bit of a habit with this, right? You begin to say, I think I can hold this a little bit longer. I think I can be with this a little bit longer. And gradually over time, you're able to be with what you thought was an anxiety that you had to change it and fix it. And then you begin to realize gradually, oh, I can be with this a little bit longer. It's it's, I don't like it, but it's okay. Do you see? So you take as much time as you need And as long as you're in the flow of the practice with other practitioners, you're always going to be in the flow of the practice. However long it takes, doesn't matter. Thank you. So it was great to have you all here. You know, Thaddeus' memorial is on Saturday and you're all welcome to come uh, if you want to. Oh, that's right. BSAC. BSAC might even be more special than or definitely going to be a little bit more lively than that is a memorial, but uh, VSAC is uh, it's called Buddha's Day. We're celebrating it on Wednesday, actually Thursday and Friday, four or five. That's the actual uh, international day. International day is uh, uh, Thursday and the official first moon of the month is uh, first full moon of the month is on Friday, but VSAC itself is just a day where they celebrate Buddha's birth, Buddha's uh, enlightenment, and his death all on the same day. It's probably like a high holy day 
like Christmas or Easter for Buddhists and Buddhists all over the world celebrate it. So we're going to have a little ceremony here. And then if you can't come here, we'll also have a ceremony. You can come online and celebrate at the same time. I think it's about an hour, how long it is. All right. So I hope I see you guys there. Should be nice. We do it every year now and I love it. So um, we'll see you then. uh, Or if not, I won't be here next week because I'll be on retreat, but I'll be here the next two weeks after that. All right. All right. Thank you so much.